Hi, this is Allison Sheridan with the NoSillaCast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, December 1st, 2019, and this is show number 760. We've got a great show for you this week, but I think my favorite part will be the ad that's going to run in the middle, also known as Pledge Break by the irrepressible Frank Petrie, also known as Wheels in the live chat room. Before we get started, though, I'd like to complain about the continuing dumpster fire that is the uh, Mac OS update Catalina. I started noticing something, you know, things happen where you think something and then you're like, man, I must be wrong. I can't possibly be right about that. I've been adding menu bar apps and then they go away or they don't start at login, even though I'm sure I told them to start at login. And what I've noticed it on is um, Monosnap, my favorite screenshot utility. Then I've got a Finder window. Or in all my Finder windows, I put five different apps into the Finder window because they're they're just the kind of things that I need to drag things onto. Like I've got my ID3 editor that I drag my um, MP3 file onto that adds all the ID3 tags. And I've got a Libsyn droplet that lets me FTP the file up. I mean, why open an app to do that when I can just drag it on there? And two days ago, they all disappeared. They were just gone. Now, the other one I just noticed now is I've got a script that I've written that takes the URL and the title of my blog post and copies it and formats it into a nice way where I can splat it into, uh, there's one for Twitter and there's one for Mars Edit, my blogging software. And I just realized it keeps saying, uh, do you want to allow Safari to control system events? It's asked me that like four times. I kept thinking, oh, I thought I'd done that before, but it just did it again just now. And I know I used it earlier today. I mentioned this in our Slack group at podfeet.com slash Slack. And I got two replies. Nuclear John said this absolutely is happening to him. Every time he reboots, he feels like he has to reset up his computer. And Chris Hitorari made a great joke. He said, you're seeing Apple's UIP implementation in effect. User integrity protection against unauthorized alteration of any settings whatsoever. Anyway, that's our story and we're sticking to it. This week's episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond was a Programming by Stealth episode and I'm not going to lie, it was a bit headbendy. Bart explains JavaScript, iterator objects, and generator functions. Without his excellent examples, I am certain I would never have been able to get the concepts to even slightly congeal in my brain. Iterator objects and generator functions are some of the joys of ES6, and they have great value, but they're really abstract. For example, generator functions disappear after you use them. Isn't that awesome? Anyway, Bart demonstrates the value of these concepts in his the succinctness of the code examples that he gives us. In the last 15 minutes or so of the episode, he gives us his solution to a challenge for those who have finished their homework. So he's giving a new challenge but he's going to show you his solution. Before he gives us that solution, Bart and I yell, spoiler alert! (laughs) And we make all these alarming noises that you can't possibly miss so that you'll know that the solution is coming. Anyway, the problem to be solved that he's going to give us this challenge is to create a little web app that generates the Fibonacci sequence on screen. Bart's solution is a fantastic example of the elegance of the tools we have at hand. Because in one little tiny HTML file with a grand total of 166 lines, half of which are comments or line feeds, 
jQuery allows him to cleanly access HTML elements. ES6 allows him to cleanly add actions to buttons in his form. And Bootstrap's makes, Bootstrap makes the buttons and forms gorgeous. It's a fabulous example of how the tools make it so much easier and quicker to make beautiful web apps. I did really have fun, even though it was a bit headbendy. You can listen to this week's Programming by Stealth in your podcatcher of choice or listen over at podfeet.com or even better, listen along and read along over at bartbooshots.ie. One of the great advances in in in-car technology has been the ability to charge your cell phone in the car. Am I right? I mean, USB-A ports were such a welcome addition. If you're really lucky, you might even have USB ports in the backseat for those pesky lower-class passengers. As swell as that is, unless you're a neat freak who puts the cables away when you're not using them, now we've got wires hanging all over the place and it looks terrible. The Tesla Model 3 has a fairly nice solution for this, but I bought an accessory that makes it even better. The Model 3 has an interesting center console between the seats. As with most cars, there's an armrest that opens up to a giant chamber where you can throw things. They did add a little felt-covered tray on top, so little things you get to all the time aren't buried in there with all the junk that inevitably ends up in that center console. But if you go forward from the armrest, there's a very smooth plastic cover that is, by the way, super prone to dust, fingerprints, and fine scratches, which is really nice. Anyway, you might not notice that this is a cover for anything, but a gentle tug flips it open to reveal another giant chamber for losing things. Let's call that the slick cover, so I don't have to keep describing which one I mean. So then, once you pull that up, there's a, or actually in front of the slick cover, there's a rubber-coated area at the very front, tilted at around 45 degrees, made to rest two phones. We're going to call this the phone rest. If you open the slick cover I described, you can tilt up the phone rest to reveal two USB-A ports underneath. You can plug in a couple of USB charging cables for your phones, and when you close the slick cover, there's actually a gap to allow you to pull the cables out for use. But now the cables are kind of coming up over a ledge, and your phone is sitting on that same ledge, so you'd essentially have to have your phone upside down to accept the cables on top. Or you could lay your phone down on the slick cover, but you're clearly doing it wrong. Instead, what you're supposed to do is plug the USB-A end into that giant chamber, then feed the other end, like the micro USB or the um, or lightning or USB-C end, you want to feed that end through the underside of that slick cover. When you do that, in theory, you can bend it around in a very unnatural way to feed up through to the bottom of the phone rest. If you succeed at this cable contortion, when you put your phone on the armrest, you can push it down to connect the cable. No mess, no fuss. And of course, that cable contortion is impossible to achieve. Now, I know I saw it in place at the Tesla dealer, but I think it was sorcery that they were able to do it. I worked on it for about a half hour, and I simply could not get the cables to bend 90 degrees to fit into the slot the way they had to. Now, I know there are 90-degree bend cables, but they still wouldn't have fit in this close corner. Rob Simmons of the SMR podcast convinced me to buy the Tesla in the first place, mostly by his enthusiasm about it. I go to him for all of my problems solving with the car, and he had a great solution for the dangling cable mess. He suggested the Nomad Qi Charger from HelloNomad.com. This is a platform that simply rests right where the existing phone rest goes, but it has two USB cables hanging out of the back of it. 
You plug those into the two internal ports in the big chamber underneath, and now you can simply set any wireless charging capable phone down on it, and it will immediately start to charge. There is no fussing with cables at all, no mess visible in the car. When you lay your phone down on the Nomad Qi Charger, a little light turns amber to indicate that it's charging, and it turns white when it's fully charged. While it does sit at a convenient angle for viewing, it's really too far down and away for face ID detection on iPhone, and it definitely takes your eyes well off the road if you look at it down there. But it is charging, and it is, uh, you know, handy. You can kind of see it. The Nomad Qi Charger is $70 from HelloNomad.com, but... I know, you're really wishing you could use a Podfeet Amazon affiliate link to buy it. I did a search and I found several similar devices to the Nomad. If you're interested, you might check out the TapTez version, which is Amazon's choice, for only $40. And it looks exactly like the Nomad Qi Charger to me. Now, the more astute of you may have been thinking that the one problem is that now you don't have any usable USB ports underneath that cover. Except for the ones in the back seat, of course. For under $10 on Amazon, you can get a USB cable splitter. This gives you one male USB end, and then it splits into two female USB A's on the other end. I bought two of these, plugged the male end into the regular USB A port under the console, and then I plugged the Nomad into the female connector on each of the splitters. That leaves me with two USB ports still available if I need to charge non wireless chargeable phones or whatever I've got. I have to admit that with these two splitters in the mix and two USB cables plugged into them, and I've plugged in an SSD to actually record all the video off of my cameras, so it is a giant mess inside that forward console. I threw a microfiber cloth over all of it, and then Steve added a little felt-covered tray for his sunglasses, and now at least we don't have to look at the mess. The bottom line is that I think the Nomad Qi Charger is the best accessory I've gotten for the Tesla Model 3. I love the clean lines, not having to think about charging, and how it's agnostic on phone platform. You know I'm not a Luddite, and that I like new applications better than just about anybody. I may have illogical loyalty to an app here and there, like how long I stayed with Super Duper when I clearly should have switched to Carbon Copy Cloner, but by and large, I move on with relative ease. There's one app I just can't seem to leave. A few years ago, the app Wonderlist and more importantly, the team who created it was purchased by Microsoft. They announced that Wonderlist was at end of life, but that they'd be keeping it alive while they developed its replacement over at Microsoft. I was worried, but you know, what are you going to do? Before I go too far, I should explain my use case for Wonderlist. I don't actually use it for to-dos for the most part. I use Wonderlist mostly for lists to share with others. For example, if Steve and I are going to his mom's or Lindsay's, we often think of things here and there that we want to bring with us. We have a shared list we call Bring to Lindsay's, and that gets reused at least once a month. Now, these lists aren't full packing lists because, of course, those are done as a mind map in iThoughts. Sharing, though, is a key feature that I use all the time. I have to be able to share my lists. Since I have several of these Bring to lists, I created a folder in Wonderlist called Packing Lists. In Wonderlist, you add lists to a folder by using a simple drag and drop. You can then close up the folder with a little chevron to tidy things up. You can drag lists and folders up and down to the left sidebar, so the ones I use are always at the top. I have probably, I don't know, around 78 lists, I think, so folders and the ability to keep only a few lists visible is also key. 
Order list has subtasks, which I find really helpful. Now, not all of my list items require that feature, but when you need to add more detail, it's super useful. You can set due dates, have reminders, and assign tasks to people. All of that isn't you know, completely necessary, so I wouldn't have to put those in my mandatory category, but I would put subtasks in my mandatory category. I would also put the ability to add more detail to a task as a key feature. Wonderlist has an open note area that I use more often than you would think, and you can add attachments. That's usually an image in my use case, but both of these features are key to me. Cross-platform compatibility and syncing are also mandatory in my list of requirements. Wonderlist works on pretty much every platform and even has a web interface that mirrors the desktop and mobile experience. After maybe a year, Microsoft came out with their first version of their replacement app for Wonderlist, and they called it simply To-Do, so it's impossible to find. Anyway, Microsoft To-Do is free in the Mac App Store. I did some testing, and it felt a lot like Wonderlist, but newer and more polished and really pretty. A new paint job with the same functionality sounded great to me. Steve is the person with whom I share more lists than anyone, so I announced to him that we had a new solution to replace the perfectly functioning but end-of-life wonder list. The first time I gave it a spin, I discovered immediately that it did not allow you to share lists. As quickly as the excitement started, it waned. I told Steve it was a false alarm. We both deleted to do, but I stayed on Microsoft's mailing list about it. About six months or so later, Microsoft sent out a note saying they'd added the ability to share lists. Huzzah! It's all wonderful now. I told Steve that this time I really meant it. To do for Microsoft was going to replace Wonderlist for us. After I twisted Steve's arm and convinced him to install To Do on all of his devices again, I went to town starting to transfer my list from Wonderlist to To Do. Luckily, in To Do, you can simply import from Wonderlist. And, you know, that makes sense since it's the same developers writing them both. Unfortunately, I'd create a lot of glop earlier in to-do, and I had to painstakingly delete each list and its items by hand before doing the import. After I ran the import from Wonderlist into to-do, I realized that there was no way to add a folder structure in to-do. Now, I know I could clean up some of my lists, but I have 78 of them in Wonderlist, like I said. I've got some old lists. I mean, I've got some that I've got tucked away under folders called random old lists. But, you know, sometimes I need those and I've got to have a folder structure for that. Without folders, I couldn't see how I could possibly stand using to do. I had to confess to Steve that this was not the solution we were looking for. Back we went to Wonderlist. After a few more months, I got an email from Microsoft telling me that the single most asked for feature was finally being added the ability to put lists into folders. I decided not to torture Steve until I was sure that to-do was really going to work this time. I installed it on all my devices, and that time I didn't delete everything one by one and import again from Wonderlist, but instead I just kind of played around with putting lists into folders. After getting them all organized just so on my Mac, I looked at the iOS version, and it only half-synced my carefully curated folders. I thought maybe it would take a little while to sync the changes across, but they never did get into sync. Back into the bin went to do. With iOS 13 and macOS Catalina, we have a brand new reminders. It works off a new database structure, and it looks like it might have everything Steve and I want. 
You can share lists. You can create groups of lists, which are essentially folders. You can indent lists, so they're essentially subtasks like in Wonderlist. They've put in a dedicated field for URLs, which is pretty handy as well. One of the main types of lists we share is the ones for Christmas shopping. Lots of times there are URLs of what we're going to buy online, so it's really nice to have that dedicated field. And you can even add images to reminders. This seemed like the perfect solution for our Apple-centric family. What could be better than something that comes built in? Well, I'll tell you what could be better. It could be better if it actually worked. Reminders in its current incarnation as of November 2019 is a constant source of frustration. Groups are probably the worst in terms of not working properly. I created 11 lists inside that group for the 11 people we buy for. So far, so good. I shared each list individually over to Steve. We both created a Christmas group on our own, which is totally fine. And we had to drag the lists into the group, but that's fine because I don't think really forcing one person's organization model onto another is a good idea anyway. So sharing the lists and then us creating our own groups was fine. But that's when things started to go down the toilet. I was able to drag and drop each of my Christmas lists into my Christmas group on my Mac. Steve tried to do the same thing from his iPhone, but dragging the list did not drop them into the group. All right, fine. He went to his Mac to do it. All of the lists would move into his Christmas group, except for two. They simply would not move. Later on, I discovered that one person's Christmas list was not inside the Christmas group on my phone, but it is inside the group on my Mac. So syncing isn't working properly. Since I can't move it on my phone, and technically it's already inside, according to my Mac's version, there's nothing I can do but stare at that one recalcitrant list. The most annoying thing is that while tapping on a group name, we'll fold it up neatly and tapping again will reveal the contents of the group. Really often, the group's just kind of spontaneously open. I'll be working in my podcast group, looking at one list item, and suddenly my Christmas group pops open and reveals itself, pushing the podcast list down below the top, the bottom of the window. I have to fold Christmas back up to be able to view the podcast group. Now, I didn't put this next thing in my requirements, but being able to bring back a completed item in a list is essential. Let's take the bring to Lindsay's example. I bring my own pillows, so that's on my list. I check it off when packing up, but the next time we're preparing to go to her house, I bring it back from the completed items conveniently available within each list. I couldn't seem to find completed items and reminders on the Mac, so I resorted to using help. According to the Reminders user guide, it says, quote, in the Reminders app on your Mac, scroll to the top of the Reminder list until you see Completed, then click Show. Okay, there's two problems with this. If I did find it there, it would be all completed items for all lists. So I'd have to scroll past Christmas presents I've already purchased, action items I've completed in my daily life and my podcast life just in order to find my pillows. But that's actually problem two. Hidden after the fact that there is no completed list at the top, like they said there is. I've got today, scheduled, all, and flagged, and right after that it says, my list. If I go into a list with everything completed, it says, all completed in the center with a big fat zero in the upper right for how many things I have left to complete. Nowhere does it show me my list of completed items. But I found a secret way to get them to show. With a list open that is showing all lists completed, I typed, completed into the search bar. This popped me out of the list I was in and showed one item under results for completed. After executing that fruitless search, 
I went back into the original list, and now it shows 12 completed at the top with the show button. When clicked, we'll reveal those 12 completed items. Now, I wondered if the search term I used was actually important, because remember I searched for completed? I went back in to the original uh, to the original list, which, by the way, removes any ability to see the completed items. They have disappeared again. And I, instead of searching for completed, I searched for boogers. Sure enough, any search term temporarily does reveal the completed items option. This software is totally ready for prime time. These complete failures to work as designed are probably enough to explain to you why I had to tell Steve yet again that we're abandoning a tool going back to Wonderlist. But I'm going to throw a little more fuel on the fire and add that I dislike the method for adding dates and times to reminders when typing on iOS or macOS. Using Siri to add reminders with dates, times, and locations works really well, which is why I do remind use reminders all the time from my watch for, well, actual reminders. For closure here, since it had been many months since I last tested Microsoft To Do, I downloaded it again this week. I deleted all of the lists from the last time I tested, and I imported all of my Wonderlist data. At one point on my iPad Pro, I was looking at one list, and I simply couldn't do anything else. I couldn't add to it. I couldn't remove from it. I couldn't rearrange the list. I couldn't even switch to another list. Then I installed it on my iPad Mini. I had to log into 1Password in order to connect to Microsoft, and the password manager got stuck. So I had to cancel out after entering my 20-character password. That's probably Apple or Agile Bits problems, but it left me cranky. Under my well, I guess it's Apple either way, if it's if it's reminders or if it's iOS. Either way, that's Apple. Under my Christmas group, I have a list called Christmas Steve and one called Christmas Steve Al's version. The first is shared with Steve, the second one is not. I copy items from Steve's wish list into my version, and then I check them off when I'm done. And I don't want him to see that. Both lists were populated on my Mac, but on my iPad mini, the second one was empty. After a day, I went back in on the iPad mini and it was still empty. And while I was looking at writing this up, it suddenly synced that one last folder. On iPhone, it's a completely different adventure. I can see all of the lists in to-do and a number next to each that shows me how many items are in there. And it matches those same lists on the other devices. But any list I tapped on opened a blank, untitled list. Seriously, it just says untitled. It's empty. Nothing there. Any list I tapped on did that. I quit the app and I reopened it, and then lists started to work. Microsoft To Do will probably get there, but every list has to sync everywhere and actually have the list items in them before I will be able to switch. I'll keep trying To Do until it's fully functional, but until then... I'm back on Wonderlist, at least for this holiday season. The bottom line is that I'm not a Luddite holding on to old technology for no reason. I'm trying really hard to get away from Wonderlist, but I keep getting foiled. Now, I'm pretty sure a lot of you are yelling things into your devices throughout this article because apparently that's the darling of the to-do list application fans. At $50 for just the Mac App Store version and another $10 for the iOS version, it's a bit steep. But on the other hand, I have spent eh, about 128 hours converting to other options and back because nothing is quite up to my wonderless joy. So maybe this is one of those you get what you pay for situations. But I'm still going to wait and see if Microsoft To Do gets fully up to the task. They've made great progress and I bet they'll get there. 
When they do finish, can one of you guys tell Steve that I'm moving him again? We'll return to our podcast in a few minutes with our next segment on why urbanites find turn signals so cumbersome and difficult to operate. I mean, honestly, who would have thought that could be passed on genetically? But first, I'd like to tell you how you can help bring such questionable content to yourself each and every week. It's through donations from such generous and ill-advised people such as yourselves. Your monthly Patreon gift of whatever you can afford, be it $5, $10, or your firstborn, helps produce such informative programming and helps the Sheridans pay off their extensive home renovation. And if you donate now, you'll receive a special limited one-time offer to be announced sometime after we receive the money. And if you're weary of subscriptions or even somewhat fond of your child, there's also a PayPal button at podfeet.com forward slash help the show for single time donations. <coughs> Cheapskate. <coughs> or do you prefer to skate on through? You can still help with an anonymous review in iTunes, ask a dumb question, or record a review, or perhaps even buff wax Allison's Tesla. Don't make her rise early every morning and head outside to scour for aluminum cans she can recycle, all under the ruse of closing her rings or earning badges. Let's get her off the streets. It's as simple as that. Even simpler than myself, in fact. Thanks for your support. Now, we return you to this week's next segment, courtesy of the Castaways, where Sandy shows us how to darn a sweater while negotiating Highway 101. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchats. I feel like I talked to you yesterday. How are you doing today, Bart? <laughs> I'm doing just fine. Let me see. 22 hours since we got off the call last? I think so. Well, anything exciting happening in security land? We have, well, yeah. I mean, it's, I'm not sure how it compares to other weeks. It's different shape to usual. <laughs> My show notes are a different shape. But we got a security medium to chew on, and I always like those. We have one to chew on, but it's not one I it's not one I like, and it's not one oh. you're going to be happy with because <laughs> it, a lot of it comes down to we don't know. Oh. So sucks to be an Android user. Eh, sort of, yeah. All right. Anyway, before we get into that, we have some follow up of long running stories we've sort of been tracking over the last while. So the DNS over HTTPS thing, I'm so glad we did a deep dive into that when we did, because that is completely taking over as a major story now. Yeah. Um, that, that's just all over the place. Um, Microsoft's doing some stuff with it, right? Right. So Microsoft announced that it's coming to Windows 10. So we're going to have native support right within the operating system. And that is right. The, the big worry everyone had was that, well, what if this thing doesn't get wide support? It's going to be a niche thing. The ISPs don't like it. What if they just start blocking it or something? So now, now that it's getting support right into Windows 10, that that, that really changes things. Um, so I, I think 
DOH is now inevitable. Is I it, don't see how you can stop it. Is it being built into Linux and uh, macOS too? Um, Not yet. Okay, Apple don't tell us what they're going to do. So one of these days we're going to get a Safari update and it'll magically be there. Okay. Um, in Linux land, it's part of Chromium. So Linux people have it through their browser, most probably either have it through Firefox or through Chrome. Okay. So, it's, um, and so really, we might the real mystery surprise. Yeah, and you know, us Apple people will get it when we get it. <laughs> sort of how these things go. What's okay. also related, um, so Steve Gibson in this week's Security Now obviously talked about Microsoft announcement, but I actually used that as an excuse to dive in deeper into why DNS over HTTPS is actually better than DNS over TLS. And intuitively, it sounds like it shouldn't be because HTTPS is HTTP over TLS. So you have DNS over HTTP over TLS, whereas DOT is just DNS over TLS, so there's one less level of indirection. So you'd imagine that DNS over TLS would be more efficient than DNS over HTTPS. But because of how wonderful HTTP2 and HTTP3 are specifications, it's actually going to bring massive new potential features to our browsers to really speed up our browsing. So actually... It makes perfect sense to go over HTTPS. It goes into it in amazing nerdy detail. Um, so if you're interested, have a listen to that episode of Security Now. I got to admit, that was a lot of letters. <laughs> it is. I don't, I don't yes, know it how is. You that, keep that's, them all straight in your that's, head. That, that's what we do as an industry, right? We just we shorten Acronym things. the crap out of it. Yeah. Suppose it is easy to say the domain name system over hypertext transfer protocol secure. Yeah. Well, good. It's all in the good direction then. Excellent. Indeed. Another follow-up. So we've been mocking Apple for the absolute, what do we decide the, the collective noun for updates is like? Is it a flock fire. of updates? Oh, hmm? <laughs> oh okay. I, I was calling it a dumpster fire of updates. <laughs> okay, that is Flurry. a new Flurry collective maybe. noun. Yeah, you can have a murder of crows. Why not a dumpster fire of updates? Sure. Right, right. <laughs> Either way, I... My my opinion is always, I judge companies by how they respond to things that go wrong, as opposed to whether or not things go wrong. So obviously, whatever Apple chose, however Apple chose to manage iOS 13, it didn't work. Whatever, you know, they obviously changed something from iOS 12 to iOS 13. Either a critical point was reached where the complexity of their OS just hit some tipping point, or they changed something. Either way, it's fair to say iOS 13 went badly. So the question on my mind has been, how will Apple respond? Obviously, it's gone wrong. Will they stick their head in the sand and pretend all's well that ends well? Or will they actually react? And I am relieved to say the answer is they will react. They had a great big presentation to all iOS hands where they explain the whole new development process, which will hopefully make iOS 14 go an awful lot smoother than iOS 13. Now, why is this specific to iOS and not... I mean, iOS was worse than macOS. I'll give it to them. But I'm still oh, I don't know that the macOS team aren't going to get one too, right? We don't... This yeah. isn't the press release from Apple. This is Apple have had an all-hands for the iOS developers. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean they're not going to have an all-hands for the Mac developers. 
Or maybe it means they're going to test this new process with iOS. If it works well for iOS, they'll backport it to the Mac next year. Yeah. I'm just curious when they're going to fix the ones we've still got. <laughs> I uh, uh, do a well, fair amount of customization on my Mac. And one of the things I do is I've got four or five apps that I put in the menu bar of my Finder windows. So like I've got my hmm. ID3 editor. I just drag my files onto that. I drag files onto Authentic Leveler to level them. It's part of my process flow. And the third one is a droplet from Libsyn. And I put them in all my, I put them in one of the windows and it shows up everywhere and it's great. And I opened my, but, I rebooted my Mac yesterday and they were all gone. Oh. Just, just not there anymore. I have at yeah. least three times told Mac OS that I want, um, Monosnap, my favorite screenshot uh, tool, I want it to launch at login, and then it's not there anymore, and I have to tell it again. And it's, okay, it's I, like I'm, I'm not sure. Set. I was saying, I thought I was just going mad because uh, Bartender is regularly not running, and I'm convinced I've told it to start at login, but uh-huh. I have three Macs. Uh-huh. Yep. And I have multiple user accounts, and I was initially saying maybe I just haven't done it on this account, but at this stage, I'm pretty darn convinced I've done it on all of my accounts. Yep. I posted about it in our Slack group, and uh, Nuclear John says the same thing's happening to him. Uh, Chris Heteroi, I'm not trying to pronounce his last name, says, you're seeing Apple's UIP implementation in effect, user integrity protection against unauthorized alteration of any settings whatsoever. (laughs) I don't think that's technically correct, but I think something is crashing. It was a joke. Okay. (laughs) User well, no, I'm sorry, I get very protection. cranky when people people give off about... Anyway. Yeah, no, yeah, he made up issue. an acronym. And he made it... Okay. It's like, it, they're protecting us against from doing any kind of uh, updates, We, or, you know, any customizations. We're just going to take those away. So I think what's happening is something is crashing under the hood, and Apple's response... Uh, the, the, the OS's response silently under the hood is to rebuild the config file from default. Yeah, maybe. The the reason I rebooted was because it decided I was being screen shared to, to by something. And yeah. it wouldn't let me use uh, Touch ID or my watch to unlock my, my uh, Mac. It kept saying, nope, can't do that when you're being screen shared to. And I had been screen sharing, but I turned it off and I turned it on again and turned it off. So I was sure it wasn't running. So I rebooted yeah, all my settings. Something got hung there. Yeah. 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 But anyway, not exactly smooth yet at 10.15.1. No. But then again, iOS 13 has gone a long way from iOS 13.1. But anyway, that's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Security anyway, Medium, we'll the only Could one. Be. Okay. So the Android camera bug is our security medium. So what what we do know. There was a bug found by third-party researchers in the camera app on a whole bunch of Android phones. And the problem is in the camera app, but the effect is that any third-party app that is given permission to write to an SSD card, which is a very normal permission. Uh, Yes, actually. Yes, SSDs are hard drives. (laughs) External storage. Yeah. Well, I mean, we call it external, right? But it is internal. It's basically expansion storage. Yeah. Which is very common on Android phones. Us iOS people have no idea what this concept is. But Mm -hmm. Android people are very familiar with this concept. And pretty much every Mac gets it or every app gets this permission because it means you can install the app on the expansion card. So if your phone only has like 64 gigs of storage, you just buy a giant big card, stick it under your SIM card or wherever it physically fits. Okay, And then if the app has permission, it can use that extra space. So it's very normal for apps to have that permission. 
Okay. But because of a bug in the camera app, you could leverage permission to write to the SD card to enable the camera or mic at any time, even when the screen is locked. What? Yeah. So, so wait, let me, I, I interrupted you on uh, twice when you were trying to get one sentence out. So let me make sure I understand that. So you've got uh, an app that, that has permission to use the external storage. That mm-hmm. app can silently enable the camera and the microphone. Yes. Even when the screen is locked and the screen is off. Sorry, when the phone is locked and the screen is oh. off. Also, it can access your library of past photographs you've taken and read their metadata, including the geolocation data in the photographs. So what you have there is a tracker and a bug, as in, not not just a bug as in it's broken, a bug as in I, uh, I have bugged the office and I'm listening to everything you say. Yeah. So this is nasty. So the Black bug was response. I mean, there's a lot of yeah. stuff you could do with somebody's entire photo library, right? And knowing where they okay, live. Okay, no, no, but I'm saying the, the, main, the main thing they're using from the photo library is the geolocation, geolocation data. Yeah. So they've turned it into a GPS tracker. Right, right. Uh, it's both. Sure, but even if you even if there's nothing blackmailable in your photo library, your photo library is probably a good record of where you've been. Mm-hmm. So if you are a government, uh, you know, with, with intentions towards people who disagree with you, this is an absolute goldmine kind of a bug. Hmm. Yes, very scary bug. Yeah. So it was responsibly disclosed to Google. And I think Google then passed it on to Samsung because what we know for sure is that Google's Pixel phones were affected and a bunch of Samsung phones were affected. Now, Google say that they patched their stuff back in July. So that's all good. And Samsung say their stuff is patched, but the most recent I've read, they didn't tell us in which patch, but they say it's patched. Does it only affect Google and Samsung? Ah, I see. Now you've hit the bit where Wyatt's in security medium. No one knows, not even Google. Uh. So if you have a Google phone or a Samsung phone, you know you're safe. If you have any other Android phone, toss a coin. Do you feel lucky? I just bought a Motorola, didn't I? Oh, dear. What I can tell you is that right... My Google phone, that's why I had to get a different phone. (laughs) Well, then you... Okay, well, then you... Yeah. The... Good. The the silver lining for now is that there doesn't appear to be widespread in the wild exploits. That could change by tomorrow. But right now, today, we don't seem to be seeing this being actively used yet. Of course, now that the news is out, that could become an evolving story. But of course, at that point, we'll soon begin to know whether your phone is or isn't affected, I guess. But for now, I think it's a case of stay tuned. You may have a problem. Which is why this is a medium story, because it's... Yeah. And notable security updates. Apple have released iOS and iPadOS (laughs) 13.2.3. Bug fixes, don't you know? They're going to start to put timestamps in them, Bart. (laughs) 13.2.3 at 6.47 p.m. There is actually a good argument to use reverse dates as version numbers and just call it a day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Microsoft are doing it colloquially with their 1903 means the March 2019 update and the 1909 is the uh, October, no, September. September. Yeah, 
it's generally a bit late, but the, basically the spring and the autumn updates. But yeah. yeah. Um, WhatsApp, if you use it, make sure you're at the latest version because there was a fairly nasty bug that exposed your messages. It's mm. been patched, but if you don't update, then you don't get the update. So on iOS, I just got two WhatsApp updates like in the last week. Not just one, but two. Well, one of those was this, and one of those was something else. Hmm. Oh, it might have been on the Mac and the iPhone. That might have been why I saw it twice. Now, they may just have, you know, had a normal patch out and then had to rush an emergency patch out. I mean, yeah. WhatsApp is patched pretty regularly anyway. It's one of those apps that seems to show up a lot in my list of patched apps. Yeah. Uh, okay, so notable news. A security researcher found a four terabyte database containing 1.2 billion with a B uh, aggregated stolen user records on the dark web. So this is basically, it's not a breach, it's a collection of goodies from many breaches archived together and placed for sale on the dark web. So this is what happens when every few months we talk about a 500 million uh bug right or 500 million things uh user accounts stolen yeah yeah do that enough times you got 1.2 billion Mm -hmm. four terabytes of plain text information that's a stupendous amount of information yeah for a text file yeah so the silver lining is that it doesn't contain passwords or payment information but it does contain enough personal information to do some really nasty phishing and maybe to apply for credit in your name if you're unfortunate enough that that they have too much so it's kind of a big deal that these kind of databases exist um it's it's been imported into have i been pwned i'm hoping that uh, trey what's his name has very large servers or a lot of space in his azure account or wherever he's hosting from uh, because his database just grew I thought he stopped uh, ownership of that. I think thought he gave it up. No, he took investment. Huh. He hasn't stepped away. He's taken money. Okay. I thought I remembered a story where he said he wasn't going to be um wasn't going to be doing it anymore. No, uh, my memory is 100% inverted. Yes, I'm taking <laughs> money. No, I haven't sold my soul. Is my memory. <laughs> Because I've taken okay. money, but this doesn't change anything. This just gives me the resources to do what I need, is my memory of it. But either way, I didn't prepare, so I have no idea. Let's see, I'm reading the uh, the who, what, and why on com. Short of the odd donation, all costs for building, running, and keeping the service currently come directly out of my own pocket. He hasn't updated that. Because that's hmm. certainly not true anymore. Hmm. All right. I, if I find anyway. anything else, I will jump in with it later. So security researchers have been poking around at Android, which is not not unusual, but this, just in the last two weeks, two very related stories about the, basically the third party part of Android's platform have come to light. So we know Google are working really hard to secure core Android and they're making some very sensible changes and we've, you know, I mean, yes, they're not perfect, but no one's perfect. That's how security works. But we've said good things about what Google have been doing because they've been doing good things. But the ecosystem is obviously larger than core Android. So security researchers are also prodding and poking at third-party apps. And two stories sort of crossed my radar in the last two weeks. So the first thing is security researchers grabbed 
Android devices from third-party vendors, so non-Google Android devices, and they scanned them for known vulnerabilities. Just, like, out of the shrink wrap, scan them. Hmm. 29 different models of Android phone, including some from Samsung and Xiaomi. 146 vulnerabilities found because these vendors add their own garbage to these devices. Oh, so they might be fine as Google put them together, but as they add their uh, slop on top? Well, yeah, but those phones, of course, never had pure Google, right? So Google released their software. That software is then butchered by Xiaomi or Samsung, and then that butchered stuff is put on the phone. So the customizations come with a really large cost, basically. So the takeaway here is, yeah, reason number 5 million and 1 to stick to core Android. So either root your phone and install vanilla Android yourself or stick with the Pixel phones and get actual vanilla Android straight from the source. But really, vanilla Android is way safer than all this customized garbage. Yeah, yeah. And then Wired had another article warning that thousands of Android apps have old security flaws lurking inside because basically code reuse. The apps are built using outdated versions of open source libraries or even paid for libraries. But if they're out of date, they're out of date. Um, And so you have brand new apps that are getting regular updates, but they're still full of old software bugs because the updates are in the features of the app rather than in the library. So the developer isn't taking the time to update his you know, bootstrap or her whatever library they're bringing in from elsewhere. So wouldn't that, uh, that shouldn't be just true of Android. That should be true of iOS, I would think. Okay, but the Wired article only covered what the researchers were researching, so I can't report news. I'm not saying it's not true anywhere else. I'm just saying we know it's true here. Right, but logically you could see outdated libraries in iOS apps. You could, and we have over the years had stories where people have been using... On iOS, it seems to be that people don't seem to use the latest APIs that are available to them. It's like Apple provide the secure APIs and all you have to do is actually tell it, please use TLS. And somehow you still have a bunch of apps on iOS that don't bother with HTTPS. It's like, but it's just a setting. The OS has just given you everything you need. Why don't you just change the setting? Anyway, yeah. Uh, I just um, I just found the answer to the Trey Hunt question. He is okay. Uh, as of June of 2019, he is looking for a new owner of Have I Been Pwned. He was he's in talks with mergers and acquisitions people. Oh, so his intention is to take investment. Not yeah, okay. That so he hasn't succeeded yet. Yeah, but it wasn't taking on investors. It was having it acquired by another company by a company. Uh, to me, that's I call that taking on investors. But okay, well, it uh, either way, on whether he goes with it. Right? Yes. Okay. So we know he's looking. Okay, it's coming back to me now. So yeah, it's a so very th- long there is the reason. Story, so I don't know yet about whether he goes with it or not. Because I think he no, worked, there's been no update since he works for Microsoft. Yeah, yeah, he's so, doing it in his spare time. Like yeah, so I don't think he would probably him. go with it. So I think it's he's selling it. I. I I will not jump to conclusions. Okay, uh, we it's shall see what, what we see when we says. see it. Okay, but you know until he finds a buyer, but it's coming back to me now that he's looking for as opposed to has found. Yeah, so I guess nothing's happened since because I know I would know if that kind of news broke. We would talk about it. It would be up here under notable news because that's very notable. Like that, he has accidentally become not accidentally inadvertently become a major part of the internet's underlying infrastructure. 
Yeah, uh, uh, the articles I'm fi- finding, uh, the article that he wrote is pretty interesting because it's full of graphs and charts going, here's the problem, and it shows like his network traffic is basically a flat line that you can't even see, and then it goes up 90 degrees, it just goes straight up. Yeah, because he's integrated into Firefox, he's integrated, I think he's integrated into Chrome. It, he has become a central part of the security architecture of the internet. Mm-hmm. And he's a guy doing it in his spare time out of the goodness of his heart. Well, that's not scalable. <laughs> yep. So that's why he's selling it. Yeah. Good on him. Because um, it's either that or it dies. And I don't want it to die because it's part of the Internet's core architecture. Yeah. Uh, okay. So another collection of related stories, this time about Twitter. And they're pretty much all good news. Um, good. So... You can now, there is now a feature within Twitter to allow you to report abuse within the list feature. So if you're somehow, I don't, to be honest, I don't use lists well enough to understand how you would abuse a list. But anyway, you can now report abuse of a list and therefore it can be remedied if it's happening to you. Hmm. Um, there are new controls for conversations. So that's been pushed out. Apparently that was in beta. That's now globally available. And Twitter have updated their two-factor authentication policy. So it used to be the case that you could have a code, but you had to have an SMS number two, which means that your entire security was downgraded to the weakest link in the chain, which is, of course, the bloody SMS. Well, after their CEO got hacked via a SIM card swap, (laughs) somehow Twitter have seen the light. So now you can have two-factor auth using only a code. You can actually remove your phone number from your account completely and retain two-factor authentication. I I don't ever want to encourage a bad actor, but uh, I've got to thank the hacker who hacked into um, Jack Dorsey's account. Well, you know where to find him now. He's just been arrested. That's the related second story under there. Oh, is it? (laughs) Yeah. Police arrest the lead chuckling squad member who hijacked at Jack Dorsey. Chuckling Squad? That's what it's called. It's, you know, like Lizard Squad. You know, these hacking groups all have these silly names they give themselves. Chuckling Squad is is where this guy apparently was. Okay. And finally, Twitter had said they were going to delete a whole bunch of inactive accounts, um, which is kind of a dangerous thing to do because it means usernames can be reused and you can end up with impersonation and stuff. And then people were like, yeah, but we've got a whole bunch of memorial, you know, we've got a whole bunch of accounts belonging to dead people that we'd actually like to preserve so that someone can't steal their username. So Twitter have sort of seen the light and went, I'll tell you what, we're going to provide, we're going to build a mechanism for memorializing accounts. And then accounts that are inactive and not memorialized will get deleted at a later date. So I think that's a good outcome. Two thoughts on that. Um, Telegram uses uh, your phone number as uh, your authentication. And the Mm. other day, uh, Honda Bob joined Telegram. Uh, Yeah. So his number got recycled. I met a lovely gentleman. (laughs) I thought maybe it was one of his kids or something using his phone or something, but no, it was a lovely gentleman that I got in a nice little discussion with on that. Um, I mean, those numbers are going to be reused because they're finite, right? Exactly, exactly. I, yeah, yeah, I understand that. I'm just saying, when your username is your phone number, then you mm. are, that it sort of automatically happens with what's uh, happening, what Twitter's trying to do. The second thought, when I was working, we put into place a social network across our company, and I was a big part of implementing this across the company, and I did a lot of uh, 
tutorials on how to use the tools. Mm -hmm. And I did a lot of mentoring things and stuff. And uh, one of the decisions we had to make when we were working on it was, what do we do if somebody dies or leaves the company or retires or quits or gets fired? What do we do Mm. with their content? And we actively made the decision to keep it. And I was really glad when they did, because that meant my content is still there. Right. Go ahead. Yeah, no, it's a really important decision to make, and you'd rather make it while you have time to think and be considerate and not in a panic. Yeah, what from what I understand, this was always the policy at Twitter that they would delete these accounts, uh, but they just decided to implement it and then had people go, well, you know, could you rethink that a little bit? Yeah, it, it, it would not be the first organization to have an official policy that you lose access to your account when X, Y, or Z happens, but no mm-hmm. one actually ever goes around to you know to press the delete button. Yeah. I shall say no more. Yeah. Um, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, the chap what invented the World Wide Web. Not the internet, folks. I get very cranky when people credit Tim Berners-Lee when inventing the internet. No, no, no. The internet was around long before the World Wide Web. So Tim Berners-Lee invented the World Wide Web. Anyway. So what's the difference? The World Wide Web is HTTP, one protocol of many that sits on top of TCP, which is the internet, or IP, in fact, which is the internet. So email predates the web. Basically, everything that existed before the web browser was on the internet already. Okay. So all that stuff your guest was talking about previously, that's even pre-internet, to be honest, but... Uh, NNTP, your network news, your IRC, your internet relay chat, your email, uh, okay. message boards, bulletin boards, all that That's stuff all predates internet. the web. Okay, It's all internet, yeah. The internet goes back to the 70s, the web is the 90s. So there's 20 years worth of internet before there was web. Okay. Anyway, anyway. so Jim Berners-Lee worked at CERN, really cool guy, invented the World Wide Web on a Mac. I believe he had an Apple II, so that'll give you an idea when it was happening. Um he has been working to try to sort of save the web from what he calls digital dystopia, which is this sort of thing like these, the private Russian internet is a classic example. And the Turks are in the process of trying to build a private Turkish internet. And the Chinese firewall of doom has been around for quite some time. And so he's coming up with sort of a, a pledge of good netizenship that he hopes Western governments at the very least, in fact, he hopes every government will adopt. He's fighting a good fight, as far as I can tell, but I think he has approximately a snowball's chance in hell. But maybe the fight is enough to stop things getting as bad as they would if no one was doing the fight. So um, I don't think he's wasting his time, but I don't expect him to have a complete success. But it's interesting, and details in the story if you want to read more about what he's trying to achieve. So I'm sort of looking at it a glass half full. If he just nudges the needle towards his goals, we're still better off than if he wasn't pushing. Right, right. So now we switch it's, to it's sort of American like flags on humanity, you know, and our kind of in our yeah, souls, like, right? Yeah, better angels of our nature. Well, it's a nice aspiration, but don't expect complete success. Right. Okay, so the last three stories here all have U.S. flags next to them. So um, the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania was forced to make a decision on whether or not passwords are protected by the Fifth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Your right against uh, self-incrimination, your Miranda Mm -hmm. rights, as they're called. Uh, Well, actually, no, that's only if you're arrested. Anyway, sorry, 
I should back up. Yeah. Anyway, Fifth Amendment. So the court decided that, yes, the Fifth Amendment is in effect on passwords. And that is a substantial ruling. But of course, it's Pennsylvania Supreme Court. So their ruling scope is purely Pennsylvania. Uh, but again, what it's do, it's one more link in the chain towards a Supreme Court ruling of the Supreme Court of the United States. And so every time there's a precedent laid down that disagrees with a precedent from a different circuit court or a different state Supreme Court, the pressure on the Supreme Court for the whole country taking the matter on increases because some someday someone is going to have to reconcile all of these different opinions on this question. Yeah, I like this one. And in fact, this one is really well written. Um, the, the, the judge clearly expected to be quoted in the mainstream media uh, because it's very clearly laid out. It's very, you know, I've heard a lot of discussion on it on various podcasts and it's a very, obviously I agree with the judgment, so I'm slightly biased, <laughs> but I do genuinely believe it is a well-reasoned and well-argued judgment that happens to come down the way I want it to. I wonder, um, I it has the articles pushed so hard on the fact that this person that was being asked to disclose her password had a 64 character password because it was TrueCrypt or Veracrypt. It was basically no, one of the. It was why true- did they make such a big deal? It could be four characters. It doesn't matter in the Fifth Amendment question, right? It kind of does actually, because they were using the foregone conclusion doctrine, and it, it you could it is a different argument to say that you it is a foregone conclusion you remember your six character password. It's actually a different question if it's a foregone conclusion that you remember a sixty four character password. Oh, so that's saying that you must have to go get it from somewhere. And now the ruling like means that. Okay, so. During the case, the length of the password could have become really important in the judgment. The way the judge ruled, it didn't. Because what the judge actually said was, it doesn't matter what length the password is. Okay. that's It's a foregone conclusion that you know your password, but the evidence that is being sought is not the password. The evidence being that's being sought is protected by the password. So the foregone conclusion does not apply because it's not a foregone conclusion that the stuff behind the password is actually what you think it is. It's only a foregone conclusion that the password is known. Therefore, the doctrine is being misapplied, overly broadly applied, and it does not apply. In a, in a way, it's good that this particular case was a child pornography case, and it's it's good that it's being tested on that kind of case because that's the icky one where we all want that to that. Sorry, I'll try. I, I can't finish that sentence without swear words. Without that horrible person, I mean, we all want that horrible person to be caught and stopped. So this is the worst possible case. And if that should still be protected, even though that's the worst possible person, the, the one you want to catch. Because you can't yes, make it that is how rights okay work. for those, right? Right. And that has to be how rights work, because otherwise they don't exist. And difficult cases is where the law has to be defended, which is why the ACLU is often defending some real scum of the earth. Because in so doing, they're actually defending every single citizen. It's just ouchy. It, 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 blah. But yes, yeah. that, you're right. That has to be where it's, you have to fight that battle. Uh, it has emerged that the United States went to the Interpol conference 
and tried to get everyone at the conference to agree to a joint statement demanding an end-to-end-to-end encryption. No such final statement was released from the conference, and now the US government are saying they never asked for that. I don't believe them. Others are free to judge if they wish. I can't say any words here. <laughs> yeah, I don't think people need to. Yeah, the RS Technica have the, the reporting. DOJ you can and judge the for FBI. yourself. Yeah. Yeah, so basically you can judge for yourself which side you believe. The the actual wording has been leaked that they wanted to get approved, so it seems Yeah, anyway. Okay. Story there. <laughs> Meanwhile, on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, the EU is um really really making it clear that it absolutely positively in no way agrees with such a stupid idea as an encryption ban. So, I phew. thought there was something uh, that the UK did about back <laughs> That's separate. Right. <laughs> okay, let's just talk about Brexit while we're at it. That's separate from the EU, right? That is separate from the EU. Uh, every country within Europe has its own opinion, but the EU as a whole, the EU's official line <laughs> sort of like within a company the company's official line and the view of individual employees are not always in alignment mm-hmm. one of the reasons the uk is brexiting is because the uk was quite often not in alignment with the majority of the european union hmm. the, the uk has a very different approach to privacy than most U, U, eu countries having the most cctv cameras on planet earth they are different yeah they are definitely different. Meanwhile, back to the United States again. Um, the NSA will not collect phone location data, promises U.S. government. It 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 got very, very, very weedy. I tried to write my own summary, and I got so far into the acronym soup, I decided I don't live in the United States. This actually isn't my problem. If anyone listening would like to untangle the weeds, link in show notes. Was this at that same conference? No, so this is to do with a whole bunch of court cases and FISA and a whole bunch of other acronyms and how the US Supreme Court ruled a couple last year that certain types of metadata are not actually allowed without a warrant, which means that real law enforcement couldn't have them. But the Mm -hmm. question is, what about secret services? Because they don't go through the normal processes. Long story short, the government are saying, yeah, we're just not using that provision under the law. So... We, arguably, we might still have the right, but it doesn't matter. We're not using it. Okay. Okay. I didn't want you to go too far into it. I was just trying to figure out the context. Okay. Yeah, no. And that's as close as I can get. It's acronym soup in there. I tried. I did try. But it's it's very complicated. Title, blah, yeah, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> uh, that then brings us to suggested reading. And there's a lot of things here I want to draw your attention to, which you may or may not then want to dive into in detail. The first one's really easy. Adobe Acrobat and Adobe Reader 2015 are now dead. They are out of support from Adobe. If you have them installed on your machine, you need to remove them because they have a long history of being riddled with security bugs. None of those bugs are going to be fixed from now on, so you cannot safely have them installed. Uh, The next one I have then is... um, Naked Security did a very in- a good article on how to avoid being scammed while doing your holiday shopping online. Um, they had the fun headline, ho, 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 ouch. <laughs> there are four times more fake retailers than real ones online. Wow. wow. Yeah, so That's be terrifying. careful out there. And 
It is a bit, yeah. Meanwhile, Rene Ritchie over at Vector continues to do sterling work. Um, he has 10 iPhone privacy hacks in three minutes. Now, when he says hacks, he means settings you can change, really. Uh, it's an interesting use of the word hack there. Oh, I thought he was saying 10 ways you can be hacked. So it's in the life hack sense, not... Oh. 10 okay. things you can do to protect yourself on your iPhone. It's okay. actually, it's That's nice and short. And actually... Yeah, like I say, that word didn't used to mean evil, but it sort of kind of has shifted. So it's as much as I don't like the new meaning of the word, because we used to have hack and crack, and hack was not malicious and crack was malicious. Yeah. Anyway. Language of um, Yeah, it's good. It's good advice. You can either listen to it as a podcast, view it as a YouTube video, or read on the show notes. So either way, you can get your 10 tips. Very sensible, three minutes long. You know, I say Rena does great work over there. The good people at Mozilla have continued an annual tradition. They do a gift guide, which basically tells you what the privacy implications are of the various things on the guide. And they call it Star Privacy Not Included. Obviously, riffing off the batteries not included <laughs> meme from the 80s. I like it. I like it. Yes. Because nowadays, everything is, it should be like USB cable not included, because we plug everything into USB, um, micro USB seems to be what we do these days. Uh, the people at iMore have been busy reviewing all of the password manager apps for the Mac. So basically, best password manager apps for Mac in 2019. So if you're going to buy yourself or someone else a present of a password manager, which is a really good present, <laughs> then you can get a review of all the different options over at iMore. And they are good people, so I would consider their advice sound. Yeah, a lot of uh, best blah, blah, blah. I don't trust anymore ever since I found out mm-hmm. about the... Um, Best VPN apps. Never, never, ever pick your VPN from a best blah, blah, blah number of uh, VPN apps because those are paid for. But I would trust iMore to be on the up and up and not be taking money to have your password manager on that list. Precisely. So I I would slightly amend your your argument and say I would actually trust the best VPN from iMore. But I would never trust the best anything on any topic from a site I don't know. Right. I mean, if because it's wire cutter, the chance. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So there's basically, you have to have earned my trust, and then I will believe you're being honest with me. Otherwise, I will assume it's for pay, because statistically speaking, I'm probably right in that assumption. Right. Which is sad and tragic, but true. And then finally, the Mac Observer actually linked me to this article, uh, but it's actually a really good polemic for parents trying to figure out, you know, what do we teach our kids about the internet? And basically, I mean, the headline sort of captures the essence of the article. We street-proof our kids. Why aren't we data-proofing them? So we teach them what they need to know to survive here in physical space. We also kind of should do the same for digital space because they're probably spending about as much time there. <laughs> or more. What, uh, or more, yeah. What's a polemic? A uh, reasoned argument, a yeah, an educated, reasonable argument. Um, so a polemic would be a, d- a deep dive into something. Okay, never heard the word. So sort of it has, it sort of has implications of being academically rigorous. You know, you got like a, a point. You you make you supporting evidence for your point. You have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's it's a structured, okay. well reasoned piece of article. Yeah, an academic argument, okay. a paper. If you submitted a paper in school, it would be polemic. 
Okay. Um, uh, yes. I get, you know, it's an interesting, it's a word that's used a lot over, no, it's a word I use a lot. Maybe it's not used a lot. Maybe I should Might be, be an academic word. Marianne is yelling it at certainly is that. right now. And she probably has a better description of it than I just gave you. It's one of those words that I'm so used to, I forget. I forget the, um, is it in the Mac dictionary? Sorry. Polemic. Polemic. A strong verbal or written attack on someone or something. His polemic against. Huh. That's not how the word is generally used here. Anyway, 17th century <laughs> word from medieval Latin. <laughs> anyway. Uh, da, 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 da. Okay, there's a bunch of other stuff that I'm going to skip over. In the news section, I have a few stars as well. So Jimmy Wales is a name you may recognize as the Wikipedia co-founder. Yeah. He is trying to, in a Wikipedia-like way, so Wikipedia works because it's financially not... Basically, it meets the follow the money principle. And he would like to create a social network that also doesn't have the money problems associated with the follow the money problems that Facebook and Twitter have with their business models. So he wants to create a privacy respecting donation, entirely donation supported social media platform. So at the moment it's in beta. And if you want to join the beta, you got to pay your money. So donation is an interesting term when it's compulsory, but it isn't just in beta at the moment. So the idea is for it to be Wikipedia-like when it finally becomes fully public. But always by donation. Yes, exactly. So he wants to make sure the financials underpinning this do not set up the kinds of conflict of interest that inevitably lead to invasion of privacy. Hmm. Because, you know, incentives are like railroad tracks. The engine is going that way. No matter what your best intentions are, incentives will be followed. So he wants to make sure the business model is such that you don't have that conflict of interest between making enough money to continue existing and or make a profit and, you know, privacy. So by doing it as a foundation. It'll work as long as they make it addictive. Right? That's the key. Or no, it can be valuable. It doesn't have to be addictive. It can be valuable in a positive way too. It's a, only, it's, it's, it's a valuable, big ask. It's got to be addictive to be uh, no. valuable. No, I'm sorry. There are lots of things in my life that I use and value greatly that I'm not addicted to. Mm. In terms of a social network, you don't think so? I, at the moment, the financial incentives are to make them addictive because they're for-profit companies. But the whole point here is we're trying to set it up so it's healthy. We're trying to make healthy incentives exist. It's a massive uphill battle, right? This is a big, big, big ask. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not discounting the financial incentive path. I'm not discounting that at all. I'm just saying that that if it's not, if a social network isn't addictive, I don't think we use it. And I'm and I'm very isolated to social networks that I'm saying this. I do not agree. It has to be valuable. It has to have enough buy-in that it, it, when you make connections, there you can. It has to have network penetration. It doesn't have to be addictive. It just has to be pervasive. This is one of those let's argue it over a beer topic. Oh, completely. There's the, 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 like, reality is going to have one outcome for this. And the world of possible outcomes is much, much larger than one. So <laughs> it will always be an academic argument. Um, I just hope it does well. Um, it will be nice to have something, anything out there whose business model is not the one we've been trying for the last decade with not success. Did you join and donate? 
No. <laughs> because, no, hang on, because I just gave $20 to Wikipedia two days before. It's like, well, sorry, Jimmy, but you're not getting me twice. Okay. I've done my bit now for the year. They get twenty euro. They get twenty dollars off me every year, and they, I get an email going. It's been a year since you donated, and I go, "Oh, so it has." Here you go, have more. <laughs> um, and the EFF get my money too, for the record. Okay, DuckDuckGo have added a new feature to automatically switch insecure pages to HTTPS. That should say in the show notes when possible. They've made it as. They've added it to their browser plugins, and they've also open-sourced it, so anyone can add it into their own browsers, which is really nice of them. I like that. Hmm. And if you would like to have a filter-bubble-free view of the news, Start Page, who are one of the alternative search engines, now have a news tab that does not do any sort of geolocation or any other profiling. It just tells you the news, period, as opposed to the news for you. Where is it getting the Which news? It, well, it's getting the news from all over the place. The problem isn't what news exists. The problem is what news is highlighted in people's feeds. And so they're saying we are highlighting the same news to everyone on planet Earth. In other words, this is what we think is most important in the world, not what we think you will like best. Hmm. So it's, you know, it could be a good way for people to you know, have an understanding of the big picture stuff out there on planet Earth these days. It's an interesting idea. I yeah. hope it goes well for them. In terms of opinion and analysis, then, I want to highlight two stories. Um, browser fingerprinting is really important, and the browsers are in the middle of a really big fight to try stop it, and they need to win that fight for our privacy. And Mozilla are leading that fight, and there's more changes coming in the next version of Firefox that's due out, I think, uh, sometime within the next three months, because it's a three-month release cycle. And Naked Security have a really good article that's 90% history followed by how fingerprinting works, and then the last 10% is, and here's what Mozilla are going to do next, and it's coming (laughs) out in the next version of Mozilla. But it's a really, really good explainer for you know, why browser fingerprinting came to be, how browser fingerprinting works, why it's dangerous, and what is being done to fight it. So it's actually a really good overview of the whole topic, even though technically speaking, it's an article about what Mozilla is going to do next. But it's it's just really well written. So it just really caught my eye. Hmm. And then the guys at Intego, they wrote an interesting article, The Chain of Trust in Apple's Devices, sort of explaining how Apple built up trust between you and your various Apple services. So it, it's, it just explains very well how, how the trust is built and how, how it also links together. So it's, it's not nearly as long as the Naked Security article, but it's well-written. Um, and the guys in Intico often actually have good articles too. Mm. And then the last thing I just want to say, it's then in Propeller Beanie, but I wouldn't call it out, but GitHub have launched Security Lab, which is this whole new tool to make it easier to secure open source software. So this is Microsoft investing in making open source better. And I just want to call them out and say, thank you, Microsoft. More, please. I like it. I like it. Uh, suggested listening, then. I have no palate cleanser, unfortunately, but I do oh, have a suggested can I give listening. You one? Oh, please. Absolutely. I, I always like Unfortunately, I don't have uh, the credits of who did this cartoon. But it shows it shows a nerdy looking guy folding laundry and is. Can I? Can I, Alison? Can we end on your palate cleanser because okay, you my just suggested you listening isn't happy, and I want to end happy. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, yes. <laughs> so 
the suggested listening is very good, but it's not necessarily going to make you happy smiley. <laughs> so one of the podcasts I really like is technically a news podcast from the BBC World Service called The Real Story. And every week they have an hour-long in-depth discussion on one topic that is related to the news of the last month or two, usually. I mean, it's current, but it's not necessarily what happened this week. And it's one of those rare things where they have a panel of people with very different views who listen to each other, respond to each other's points, and don't shout over each other. Very rare in this day and age. Um, And the topic could be anything. But every now and then, technology intersects with the news. Uh, uh, or at least intersects with stuff that the, the guys from The Real Story think it matters in current affairs. And this week's podcast was one of those. The question is, can algorithms be trusted? More and more of what's going on in our lives is controlled by these hidden algorithms. Like, really life and death stuff, like whether or not you're eligible for parole in certain US states is done by these mystery algorithms. And it's just a really good this explanation of the topic, an explanation of the issues, an exploration, basically, of why it matters that we, we should all, in fact, be asking our elected representatives to start taking a stand on this. Because really, we probably need it to be the case that algorithms must be open. They must be they must be able to explain why they came to the conclusion they came to. You know, it's anyway, it's, it's, it's just a really good listen, but it's an hour. It's detailed, but you won't leave it going happy, happy, joy, joy, all as well. <laughs> You'll leave it going, we're not doomed, but we'd want to be darn careful or we will be. Which is actually a positive, useful message you can do something with. Well, that's good. But not least. happy, happy, joy, joy. Not depressing, but not happy, happy, joy, joy. So now, please, cleanse. All right. Um, let's see. I think in the time you were talking, I fa- might have found the origin. Uh, it's from somebody uh, named R.C. who drew this cartoon. She has a nerdy looking guy and he's he's folding laundry and a woman is standing in the doorway looking at him. And she says, look at you folding laundry. And last night it was the dishes. Just exactly what part of, no, you're not buying an $11,000 lens. Don't you understand? <laughs> I thought amongst us, uh, quite a few might appreciate that uh, that particular yes, we, line. We we have gas gear acquisition syndrome. Yeah. Anyway, I thought that was a good uh, uh, good. I like cleanser. it. <laughs> I like it a lot. I presume you'll have a link for the show notes. I don't have a link. I can't find the original. I can find it everywhere as a meme, but I can't find the uh, the original. It's someone named RC. That's all I know. Okay. Well, so I put it people in the are just going to have to listen and enjoy. Well, I, the picture's in the show notes. Oh, okay. That'll do. Yeah. That'll do. <laughs> All right, Bert. Well, this was good. We got it done. We got it done. And I had said I wanted to finish up at half past 11, and it is now 2330. Exactly. No, go me. <laughs> go us. Actually, go us. <laughs> All righty. We'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks. We will indeed. And until then, remember to stay patched so you stay secure. Well, I told you guys last week that I needed recordings, and Frank not only did Pledge Break, he sent in a fantastic review, but I'm going to save it, because you can't have too much Frank in in uh, one week, you know, that would be overdoing it, uh, but I'm going to save it for when I need it, probably Christmas week, but I got to tell you, it's even better than his Pledge Break, it's fantastic. Uh, but I'm telling you all that by way of saying 
please send in recordings. It would really help me to flesh out the show without having to sneak off and record while I would really rather be having some holiday cheer with my family. We got to keep the show going. If it's a, you know, a five minute segment by Frank and then I wind up the show, that's what you'll get. Uh, but it would be great if you guys, you know, dusted some stuff off your desk and, you know, grabbed your stapler, like I said last week and do a review on it. That would be fantastic. You got a favorite app. You got some menu bar app you like. Uh, you want to rant about uh, Catalina, whatever you want to talk about. If it's tech, you should bring it on to the, uh, to the NoSilicast. But it's time to not forget to send in your dumb questions. Those count too. Your comments, suggestions, you can send in your recordings to me by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. If you're looking for that Patreon thing that uh, that he was talking about, that Frank talked about, podfeet.com slash Patreon. Want to join our Slack community I was talking about earlier? Podfeet.com slash Slack. Still like Facebook? We got a Facebook group too. Podfeet.com slash Facebook. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.